want us to consider this, this theme of judgment in the kingdom of grace. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of discussion in the church today around like what, there's a lot of discussion around authority, around, uh, around the idea of church discipline. I'm always like suspicious of, of, uh, of movements that seem obsessed with uh, disciplining people. Uh, or they, they're almost more excited about someone getting in trouble in church than, uh, than inviting them into to grace. Um, I'm deeply suspicious of a theology um, around judgment in which judgment overrides mercy um, or the gospel of grace uh, because there's plenty of scripture uh, that warns us um, against the folly of our own limited knowledge and the fact that we exist for the good of those who are lost. We exist for the good of those who sit outside of our pews and that, and that judgment belongs to God. And so what place does it have in the believer's life and what, is that, what does that mean? And so, uh, you know, I wanna just begin by, by um, sharing this. You know, the, the natural bent due to what is against nature, sin, it means bitterness and blame shifting uh, is the repeated behavior of our individualistic therapeutic age. Uh, in other words, the scapegoat mechanism um, is at the center of human discourse. And what I mean by that is, is if you were to take the works of Rene Girard, who would argue that that violence in society is driven by mimetic rivalry, the desire to have what our neighbor has. That instead of desiring to be, desiring what Jesus' desire was, which was the desire to be one with the Father, uh, we tend to desire to have what we see others have, and we want that. And that, that mimetic rivalry leads to the sense that I'm not getting what I deserve, they're getting what they don't deserve. I should have that. And it's what's created a, a, a hyper victimization in our culture. Uh, and this is deeply problematic because that victimization culture is, is driven by this idea that all the problems that we experience personally is, is usually the result of someone else's problem that has been applied to your life. And therefore, judgment is the natural outcome of a society that's hell-bent on equity because it's always about how we're not getting it. The demands for equity is, is driven by the false narrative that, um, that everything that happens in life is unfair. And I would argue as a Christian, the thing that is supremely unfair is grace. That's the thing that's the most unfair. Uh, and when we remember that Jesus is both the judge and the judged in our place, uh, when we understand how much of our own nature uh, is deserving of the severest judgment, uh, when I think about just the multitude of thoughts that kind of skip through my brain throughout the day, how many of those thoughts are unworthy of Jesus and his kingdom, and yet God, in spite of that, and you're like, what kind of thoughts, Josh? And terrible thoughts. 
so many terrible thoughts that if I told you, you wouldn't allow me to be your pastor. And this is the nature of the human ego. This is the nature of the multitude of voices that are constantly vying for our affection and feeding into us a narrative that is actually contradictory to the gospel, and yet it often overrides the truth of the gospel. I, I like what Jacques Ellul in 1948 wrote with such precision. He said, Christians cannot consider themselves pure in comparison with others or declare themselves unaffected by the world's sin. A major fact of our civilization is that sin is becoming more and more collective and each individual person is constrained, constrained to participate in it. That's a fascinating thing. That our, that technology has, that technology has made it impossible for us to escape our brother, our sister's sin. That the, the way that we are knit together um, through things like social media and the internet, uh, through globalism, means that we, we kind of bear this sort of universal guilt uh, because we can't escape the narratives of our world unless you live in some kind of weird vacuum. I mean, I guess all of us can, you know, make an oath that we'll never have a smart device. We, like, everyone that goes to Door of Hope, it's truly a member only has flip phones or something. Like, that's kind of an interesting idea, isn't it? You're like, what, what does it take to be a member at Door of Hope? You have to get a flip phone. That's it. That's, that, that's the only thing. It's a, if you don't get a flip phone, you're under church discipline uh, for allowing the voices of the world. And you have to wear earplugs. Um, and... Also, you have to be blindfolded when you go out shopping, so that requires escorts. And just the whole thing would become extremely complicated if I was to truly try to enforce a means by which we could protect you from the multitude of voices that are vying for our heart's affections. There is no way of doing it, which is why we need one another. It's why we need to be reminded again and again, uh, we need to be repetitious in the ways that we drink in the narrative of our world and how much it affects the way that we interpret God and one another. And I think that this is a, this is a problem because when it comes to judgment, uh, this is the thing that I always like to state, that our capacity for judgment toward others and our simultaneous justification of ourselves is a deeply troubling one. Uh, and I think that this is one of, one of the things that we tend to do is that we don't recognize how fundamentally broken we are. Um, and so we, we, often, we often refuse uh, grace in others, those that we perceive to be a threat to our happiness, that false notion of happiness, uh, those that we see as a threat to our overall well-being. We refuse grace for them while abusing it in ourselves. <laughs> And, uh, and that, is a, that is such a heartbreaking reality. But here's, here's why we do that. I was talking with my mom last night. And she was sharing with me the, um, how painful it was for her to read my book. That it forced her to, confronted with, you know, the traumatic stories in which I share about my childhood and what, it's like, what it was like to have stepdads that were less than optimal uh, and you know she read it and felt this weight of guilt it felt almost a judgment upon her ability and that that's not the goal of the book um, and it, what was interesting is that in those conversations how quickly it can be um, well 
it was this way because of this aspect of my childhood, and that is the reality, it's true. We're all products of our own history, and we're the products both of our own actions and things that come from internally, from in our own broken systems, but we're also the products of, of the actions of those who have impacted the way that we view the world. And you, you can't be a parent and not have both positive and negative impacts on your children. The question though for us as Christians is how do we utilize our narratives uh, to, to basically hold others accountable for things that are broken within us? And when we do that, all we do is we basically put off the, the opportunity for real healing uh, because we can't seem to own the fact that no matter what, we still are responsible for the things that we do and we still have to give an account to the God who created us, the only one who actually has the ability to judge with perfect justice. And I think that we have to break free from that, what I call the opaque proclamation or the primordial call from the garden. It wasn't me, it was the woman whom you gave me. It's a, what a powerful verse that reminds us that all of the woes in the world are caused by women. No, <laughs> I was just seeing if you're awake. <laughs> and what did the woman say? It wasn't me, it was what? The serpent who deceived me. That picture is a picture of absolute blame shifting. And as I pointed out before, it's so fascinating to me is that the serpent doesn't blame anyone. He's just like, yep, it's true. I did it. I did it and I did it well. Uh, and that, what, was, what did the serpent do? He breathed into the, into the ears of our first parents a discontent with their place in the world. Uh, a restlessness, but what's so fascinating is that the moment that they decided to be their own gods to define for themselves right and wrong is the moment that they began to blame each other for the mistakes that they inevitably will make when they decide to define for themselves what only God can define. And this is the nature of what we see around us right now. I mean, it, it is a, I mean, it's an, it's an absolute circus out there uh, in regards to, you know, that every, I feel like every ideology that's like, that, that we're bombarded with right now, if it's the left, it's the, it's the constant, uh, the constant vilifying of the, the right. If it's the right, it's the constant vilifying of the left. If it's particular, you know, if it's a, if it's, if it's a, a, a group that adheres intensely to ideas like critical race theory, then, you know, the villain is white heterosexual males. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. Like we can, we can find, and then if you're, if you're, if you're the, if you fall into the trappings, like I'm an oppressed white man, then the, then, then the, the problem is, uh, is, is the, the left woke. I mean, it just goes on and on. And, and we as Christians get wrapped up in these conversations and we lose the fact that what we are called to be is witnesses to a gospel that is inviting people into the love of God, regardless of what their background is, what their story is, what their pain is. What we believe is that we are all equally guilty before the living God, all of us deserving judgment in what we received is something so unfathomable, which is grace. A love that came to us, not because we're lovable, but because it's God's nature to love. 
And if we have received that, we cannot enter into those narratives and come out unscathed. It's just the fact. So let's actually ask the question then, what does Jesus have to say about us in the seat of judgment? Well, he actually has quite a bit to say. Let's look at Matthew chapter seven, verses one and two. Here is the theme as well as the warning. Do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. What we are being told here is, is this picture of the kingdom of grace means that we are to be a reflection of Jesus. And one of the things I love that Alul points out in that same book, um, the, I just read it again, it's so profound. I think I've read it like three times in the last couple of years. Uh, Presence in the Modern World, which was his basic theological overview that he wrote in 1948, French philosopher. I mean, he saw, he saw the Nazi Germany uh, it was one of the first guys to like ring the bell in France to say, I'm telling you guys right now, this is gonna be a problem. <laughs> this is gonna be, this is gonna be a world war. Uh, and uh, wrote a famous essay entitled, uh, entitled Fascism, the Son of Liberalism, which is, I think is, is also a profound argument that we tend to, we have these polar swings uh, that tend to lack any kind of balance or semblance of, of truth is that we just go from one extreme to the other. Uh, and, and he said, he said, listen, Christians are called first and foremost to be witnesses. And we witness to God and he uses, the, he uses that metaphor of salt. The church is to be salt. The church is light and the church is sheep. And when he uses the analogy of sheep, he says, it is not appropriate for Christians to function as spiritual wolves. The world wants to be wolves. Everybody wants to be, be dominant. Everyone wants to be the one in control. And he says, we cannot afford to play the role of spiritual dominators. Christians are meant to reflect the sacrificial lamb, the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. In other words, our posture before the world is to reflect the very God who laid down his life for the world. Which means it's not judgment, but it's a willing sacrifice. I will die that you might live. <laughs> this is the upside down kingdom of Jesus. When Jesus says, do not judge or you too will be judged, and for the same way you judge others, you will be judged, is that, that concept of that cycle, that vicious societal cycle, is that we judge others uh, and others judge us and we just fall into the trappings of consistently pointing the finger, I'm this way because of this person, because of how I was raised. Uh, we're experiencing what we're experiencing in our city because of our city, it's all, the, it's our city council's fault, it's, I, I do that, that's what I do, um, which is why I wanted to announce today that I'm running for mayor. I was like, I think I can do it. I think I could do it. <laughs> I think anybody could do it, actually. <laughs> but who's currently doing it? Um, and uh, I, I think that, 
here's the thing. Look at I just passed judgment. I just got political from the pulpit. It just happened. Uh, that's the one, I'm never going to do it again, <laughs> except when I run for mayor. Um, but I, I think this, don't judge unless you too will be judged the same way you judge others. Notice how the gospel is meant to put a stop to the cycle that actually defines human history. Isn't that, isn't that a profound thing? What Jesus is calling to, when we live according to the kingdom of God, which is already here, not yet in full, but is here, and is here wherever God's people gather around the living Christ, that when we allow Christ who now lives within me, is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, the desire for what others have has been broken because we have entered into intimacy with the living Christ who has called us to imitate his desire to be one with the Father, which is what we were created for. Oneness with God is what leads to right relationship with one another. Right relationship with one another is what actually allows us to even begin to understand ourselves, but all of it requires a position of humility. I like what it says in James chapter 2, verses 12 through 13. Uh, people often, you know, even Luther gives James this kind of bad rap as being almost legalistic, but James is giving us the, the outcome of a life that has been captivated by the gospel of grace. And he says, so I speak, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty, judgment under the law of liberty, the law of grace, the freedom that comes to us because Christ has set us free. How do we treat people who, uh, who are enslaved when we, once, when we understand that we once also were in the bondage uh, to death itself? And he says, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. I love this. Mercy triumphs over judgment. I, I think that this is, um, this is something that we need to understand, that the love of Christ is itself condemnation of sin. In other words, to live out the gospel, the offensiveness of the gospel is driven by this, is that nothing brings about an internal conflict like receiving grace when you know you deserve judgment. Nothing has actually convicted me more than when I've had a really horrible week and a terrible, terrible weekend and I just feel far from God and I feel like my spirit's been rebellious and I've been in one of my artistic funks where I'm kind of self-absorbed and depressed and, I'm in, and it's Saturday and I have to preach the next day and I just like, man, this is so bad, and I just, I'm convinced that I'm gonna come under this cosmic judgment, and, it, and I'm gonna preach the worst message I've ever preached because Jesus um, is going to, he's gonna, he's gonna judge me in a way where I'm gonna be publicly humiliated, and then, and then he shows up in some powerful way, and people are like, man, I just felt the presence of Jesus <laughs> so powerfully, and you're, this is why I sin all week long, every week, because um, I want it to be about Jesus. No, what does Paul say? Do we sin that grace may abound? Absolutely not. The point is this, is that often in those seasons where I felt like I was the least 
equipped or qualified to be a conduit of grace as often when Jesus utilizes me in spite of me to remind me that it had nothing to do with me. To me. But this is I always tell people, when a preacher preaches and it's an effective ministry, that is not the litmus test for their own personal walk with Jesus. Because wherever Jesus is lifted up, he says, I will draw people to myself. So I always tell pastor, don't, don't, don't base your own spiritual maturity upon the effectiveness of your ministry. Because there are lots of guys with massive ministries uh, who live duplicitous lives. And Jesus works through them in spite of them. And it's a baffling thing. And it's one of the things when it does become exposed is such a blight on the church and often pushes the world toward a more severe judgment of us uh, and also creates a judgment and a, and a skepticism within the, within the pew. This is why I think it's so important that we as the church, that we need to push toward a radical vulnerability, the way that we will keep ourselves from falling into the trapping of that hyper-victimization culture is by actually heeding the words of Jesus, do not judge or you too will be judged for in the same way you judge others. In other words, the more I recognize that I myself have not deserved the grace that I have received, how can I function in a severity with my brother, with my sister? How could I have treated my dad? If I was to give my dad what he had deserved, if I was to just base his performance as a father off of the world's standards, there was absolutely nothing that that man ever did that deserved even a minute of my time. He abandoned us at one year old. He chose his entire life, drugs and alcohol, through his entire life. And I can see that with clarity. I recognize the truth of that, and I don't have to diminish the fact that it was painful, um, that I'm a product of an absent father, that, that, it, that it actually did damage to my psyche as a kid, and has followed me into adulthood. I don't have to, for a minute, acknowledge that that's okay. However... What overrides the reality of my father's absence and his essentially disqualification uh, to be treated as a father uh, was overridden by the fact that it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. And because I have been able to receive the kindness of God for the brokenness that I bring into the lives of others, it allowed me to actually look at my father through the lens of Christ and see him and be reminded of him is that he was once someone's little boy. That he was once someone that his mama held on her lap and he was helpless without her and he was loved and cherished and he had his own broken history and he had his own absent father and his own alcoholic father who had an alcoholic father and I'm able to see with the eyes of Jesus that this is the pattern of sin in a fallen world and that Jesus gives us the power to break the cycle by seeing things for what they are but not succumbing to the root of bitterness and a judgment that actually says, I'm justified. Because our judgment is often driven by a desire to justify our cruelty to others because we see ourselves as victims rather than recognizing that we ourselves will be a victimizer as much as we will be a victim in our lives, which is why we need grace. I, I love this because 
Jesus himself said in John chapter 12, verse 47, 48, he says, if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. If Jesus says that is his own motivation, and what did Paul say, imitate me as I imitate Christ, what is, that, what is the imitation? He's not calling us to do the things that he did exactly the way that he did them. He's saying, imitate the desire that you see in me, the desire to be one with the Father. Imitate my intimacy with, with Christ, just as Jesus called us to imitate his intimacy with the Father. And that intimacy with Christ is, is, is a reminder that God's mission in this age of grace is the salvation of unworthy sinners. That's his pursuit. There is a day when the savior of the world will come back as judge, cosmic judge. And we are told that, there, that, that it has been appointed once for a man to die and then comes the judgment. Every one of us, again and again, we are told that we will give an account to God for the things that we have done. God's judgment, which means his absolute ability to perfectly see through the motivations of all that we have done, and it will be taken into, uh, into account in light and under the gospel of Christ. And so the judgment of God will be, it, it is a judgment that comes through the cross, which was a final judgment on sin. This is why I think that the only unforgivable sin, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, is to reject the one who actually killed sin on the cross of Calvary. A rejection of Christ is to, put, is to reject the cure to the guilt that we that, that, is, that is a reality for all of us. And the more I understand this covering of grace, the less it is possible for me to actually treat someone uh, as one who deserves my judgment. First of all, I, I don't trust my own, um, my own ability uh, to, um, uh, to read uh, people as fully as I think I'm capable of. Uh, the false foundation that has led to much cruelty in the church is this. It's the belief that God is above all things just. <laughs> Nowhere in the Bible does it say that God is justice. But we act like the scripture says not God is love, but God is loving. And we turn God into loving justice instead of just love. What I mean by that is not just love, as in love is the only thing, but just love, a love that is holy, that is a, that is a fierce love. Because when you turn him into just loving justice, you turn him into a mild judge instead of a severe father. And what I mean by severity is the very holiness of God, his love burns fiercely against all that is unlovable in the beloved, which is you and I. His love will burn us clean. That's why we say that God's love is elective. He chooses to love sinners in their sin, but it's also holy love. He is not content to leave us there. And so the very love of God judges the sin in the sinner. That's part of our sanctification. It's the purifying reality. And nothing convicts people like being accepted when they know they ought not to be accepted because they understand their own brokenness. But 
only the person who knows their own brokenness and the fact that they are accepted by the beloved um, is able to offer that same acceptance. It's very difficult to offer someone an acceptance that we ourselves don't believe is possible to receive. It's not, it's not very compelling for someone to tell someone about the love of Jesus if you don't actually believe that Jesus loves you or that his love for you is contingent upon your performance. You will inevitably fall into the trappings that love is based more upon a judgment. Uh, a ju- a, it's a judgment basis. Is he worthy? Is she worthy of this love? If not, then probably not going to get it. That's not how the gospel works. And it's not based upon our feelings it's based upon the truth of who Jesus is. Look with me at these two facets um, of judgment. And I want to first consider judgment and blindness. In verses three through five, it says, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the, take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Judgment blinds, and love illuminates. Isn't it interesting how judgment blinds us? When we live in a posture of judgment, when we judge those around us, to make ourselves feel better in the world, what in actuality is happening is that we are blinded by our own sin, incapable of seeing that we are in no place to play judge when we, when we enter into those games of what I call selective sanctification. We never know the whole facts or the whole person. Have you guys ever read um, Raymond Carver? Uh, he was actually Northwest author, considered one of the greatest short story writers in America's uh, history, literary history. Uh, and he, he actually, uh, I think he was born in Port Angeles and lived in like Klatskanai. And all his stories are these extremely heartbreaking. I, there's a prophetic quality to him and they, they, it captures perfectly my upbringing. Uh, he was obsessed with kind of the impoverished, blue collar, rural, depressed town role of existence, you know? So people that just are lost and kind of in this place of sort of cosmic loneliness because they're products of a society that's cruelly kind of tossed them aside. So most of his stories take place in like people trying to break the habit of, like something is mundane and someone trying not to smoke or, uh, or it'll take place in like an AA meeting. He, just, he gets into the very gritty realities of earth. But he has this one very profound story um, and I think it's in Cathedral and in the story is this little boy, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's his birthday, uh, and his mom goes to a baker and orders a cake, and she orders a cake for him, and that day, the boy, on his way to school, falls off his bicycle and hits his head on a curb on the sidewalk. Um, and he gets up, and he, and, and he gets into school, and he gets sick, starts throwing up, and is rushed to the hospital where he has a brain aneurysm and dies. It's super uplifting. Um, Anyway, the, the mom and dad, in their grief, forget that they ordered a cake. And the baker becomes obsessed with the fact that he spent all this time making this cake. And these people rudely didn't come and pick it up. So he starts harassing the parents, starts calling and leaving endless voicemails. Because, by the way, this is, this is back before 
the, the story was written in the 80s. So it's like the little, the answering machine, just like it's the answering machine, just endless, endless kind of diatribes against them for being so rude. And finally, the mom and dad go into the bakery and they let the baker know that the reason they didn't pick up the cake is because their son had died. And he feels so bad that he grabs a fresh loaf of bread and gives them each a piece of bread and that's the end of the story. I don't know what the bread's about. Here's the point of the story. It is, is this, the, I think it's a powerful story of the ways that we react or respond to people is driven by very, very limited knowledge that we don't actually know. Uh, we actually don't know what people are going through. So I always get freaked out when I hear Christians talk about politicians. They're like, he's a terrible man. He's a horrible person. Because all we're basing that off of is what little information we get, what sound bites we get. It doesn't matter if it's Biden or Trump or whatever. Like we, 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 we get very, very um, just so confident in our ability to read people. And it's what, it's what uh, um, is referred to by Daniel Kahneman in his brilliant book, Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow, is a confirmation bias. The confirmation bias is driven by this, is that your brain really is split up into two, it's, it's got two, two sides to it. System one is, is, that, uh, is that immediate system that when you see someone's face, system one of your brain is what allows you to, to drive a car without thinking about driving. It's, the, it's kind of the unconscious decision-making aspect of your brain, which is a profound aspect of human existence, our ability to respond to something quickly, uh, to, to draw information from, from our minds in, in a moment, uh, to be able to, to have a read on how someone is feeling based upon their expression. That's system one. But system one is, uh, is, is also the most dangerous because system one is gullible and it's, and it's biased um, to believe uh, information without having complete information. System two is the analytical side of our brain. But system two, that analytical side requires a tremendous amount of energy and it, and it has to be able to process information in a way to be able to gather the facts. And the problem with our brains is that system two is a lazy controller because it uses up too much of our energy. Literally, if you get into pro significant problem solving that requires you use that analytical side of your brain, it's what makes you tired. You know, how many of you read and are tired within a few minutes? Uh, the experience of some people, just like the books, you're having to process information in a different way, and it literally makes you tired. When I used to work in a cubicle under fluorescent lighting, I was like, I was convinced that there was some sort of conspiracy that fluorescent lighting makes people crave chocolate. What I realized is it was not the fluorescent lighting. Uh, uh, what I've come to dis discover, a scientific fact, is that I was using my analytical side of my brain in this particular work, which is not natural to me, so it takes a lot of work and a lot of focus, and it depletes all the sugar in your brain, which actually makes you crave sugar. Um, so if you're ever like, like I'm tired and I want sugar when I'm doing problem solving, that's why. So, and, and, but here's the thing, when that's called, this is what it leads to, is the halo effect. 
And the halo effect is if, if you like a president's politics, you probably like his voice and his appearance as well. That's actually a fact. You know that like presidents traditionally have not been elected if they have weak chins? Because we don't actually know how to process, our brains will trick us into believing we have the information necessary um, to make any kind of, any kind of well-informed uh, vote on someone that we know very little about. And politics is often so s circular in its argumentation. Everyone says they're gonna do everything to fix everything without really much detail. But if we like the way they sound and they speak with the confidence and they got a strong chin, I guess, we we're more likely to vote for them. Um, and believe that we did it with an intelligent, unbiased mindset. But that's not the truth. Well, confirmation bias and halo effect plays deeply into how sin works in the human experience, which is this concept of spiritual snobbery. It's really crazy when you see a speck in someone's eye, that, that analysis of someone's, you know, their, their, their quirks, their faults, their, they, this person talks too much, they, you know, they seem to be, they seem to be obsessed with themselves. We, we can point out, we, I don't like their politics, we, we can point the finger at them, but it, what, what is so challenging is that when we enter into that place of judgment, which is based upon, based upon a confirmation bias, minimal information, uh, it's based upon a halo effect, an overconfidence in our own ability to actually discern what's happening with someone else, and then an absolute blindness to our own fundamental brokenness. It's like the pastor that preaches against sexual or preaches against alcohol while having an affair. You know, it's the, it's the it's the pastor that'll get up and rail on on uh, on homosexuality when. He himself is an adulterer. I mean, it's a, it's a crazy reality in which that the log in one's own eye. Now, here's the thing. Just recently, I actually got a piece of metal in my cornea. You guys remember I preached in sunglasses and, it was, uh, and I felt like a cult leader. And I actually had a piece of metal and it was so small, I couldn't see it. And I went to uh, optometrist from here and he looked in my eye and then he goes oh yep there's a piece of metal in your cornea uh, and it was so small even when he took it out and I looked at it I still couldn't see it and it was incredible how much pain it caused like how terrible just the sliver was in my in my own eye like like it was I couldn't keep my eye open it just watered it was fire engine red for like three days straight and I was like it's incredible, and Jesus uses this illustration so perfectly, is that if we actually understood how painful it is <laughs> to remove something from our own eye, we would be very, very gentle. If we actually removed a log from our eye, we'd be very careful in how we help others come to a knowledge of truth, is what Jesus is saying. If you actually have gone through the painful experience of a love that cleanses you will, you will, as gently as possible, lead people into that grace that brings cleansing. Because we know the grace of God, if we get our center right, it will work its way out into our parameters. But we spend time, we get our center wrong, and then we spend all of our energy on the parameters trying to fix those things. 
and we never even ask the question, if we get people's performance to the, up to snuff, then we don't even have to ask the question of whether they actually know the Jesus that they say they believe in. Does that make sense? So we fall into, this is what, where judgment and blindness is it becomes the blind leading the blind because the Christian life for those that live not un, in the light of grace but in the light of judgment is, is turn their Christianity into a list of do's and don'ts rather than a living relationship. The goal is arriving at some sort of fulfillment of that list rather than knowing and knowing intimately. And that's a big problem. This is why judgment leads to blindness. 1 Corinthians 8, 2, and if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. We refuse grace in our, in, in our judgment of others, abusing it in ourselves. This is why Jesus said in John chapter 7, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Righteous judgment our righteousness is a gift that comes to us not because we deserved it, but because we have placed our faith in Christ. We should be functioning from that position of recognizing that the only reason we are a saint is because we are a sinner that's been forgiven. That we are evil, according to Jesus. We are evil people who have said yes to Jesus, and that's the only thing that separates us from those that have said no. And when I understand my own capacity for evil, and this is why I like to ask the church, do you see yourself as evil? And often in the church, very few people are willing to raise their hand, and yet Jesus said to his own disciples, you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask? And the fact is, is that we are blind to the fact that Jesus only sees two categories of people, evil people that say yes to him and evil people that say no to him, which should cause us to tread very carefully. And a simple motto that actually is quite helpful is be hardest on yourself and easiest on others. If everyone did that, there would be far more conviction around sin because it is way more convicting when someone shows you grace when you know you deserve judgment. The thing that causes me to want to change and pursue righteousness is seeing that no matter what, I am loved. And that knowing that I'm loved actually brings more conviction because it's like, Lord, how can you keep loving me when you know how broken I am? It's what pr produces in me a humility rather than a bitterness over my sin. There is a, there's a brokenness that leads to healing rather than rather than a refusal to acknowledge uh, the fact that none of us deserve grace, which leads to a bitterness that keeps us in a, in a place of, of, of hardness. That hardness of heart is, is that refusal to receive the grace that actually breaks us and breaks us open so that we can see how desperately we are lost without Jesus. This is a blindness that comes with judgment. But what about judgment and discernment? This is a really fascinating passage, and this is where we want to close. He says, do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. We have to be very careful to not apply 
1 Corinthians chapter 1, 18, uh, chapter 1 verse 18 to this, to our interpretation of this text. And what the heck does this text have to do with judgment? Isn't that an earth? How does this have to do with judgment? Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. Like, he just got done telling us not to judge people. And now he's, and it's, don't, don't fall into the trappings of judgment that it actually flows out of a blindness, a blindness to our own brokenness. No, what he's talking about now is a judgment that flows out of discernment. It's, it's judgment that's not based upon, upon uh, the hatred of others or the cloistering of ourselves, uh, but it's a, it's a judgment that flows out of knowing the one who is the truth, and it's the ability to discern what is false from what is true. This is a different kind of judgment, um, but I think it's also Jesus playing with the very theme of judgment because all of a sudden, if you're not to judge those uh, without bringing upon ourselves the same judgment with which we judge, then now, he's, now he immediately throws in, don't give dogs what is sacred. Now you have to be able to define what a dog is, which is essentially doing what? Judging someone. Like, he just said, don't do, so there's like a, he's like, don't, don't give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. So we have to decide who is a dog and who is a pig before we, uh, before we share the gospel. Is that what Jesus is saying? So how do we do that without violating the, f- the first half of this, this section? Well, the way that many commentators do it is they just don't allow what we just read <laughs> to be connected to this. So, well, this is just a new part of the sermon. It actually has nothing to do with you can't disconnect it. They, they run together. And if you seem like there's, this is a trick and we've been led into a quandary, it's because it's a bit of a trick and we have been led into a quandary. It's kind of like the whoever looks at a woman lustfully commits adultery with her and then he goes on to talk about adultery. And you're like, well, you basically just said essentially that everyone's an adulterer by the fact that nobody has had pure thoughts about everybody they've ever seen. I know what my wife thinks when she sees Brad Pitt, and it's bad. It's many other actors as well. Um, This is just part of my own insecurities, and I'm judging her right now without her being here to defend herself, because that's the right thing to do. It's it's bold and courageous. (laughs) But... How do, you, how do you do this? Wait, whoever's angry with his brother is a murderer. Uh, which he tells us, what is he saying? Everyone's a murderer. So much of what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount is meant to lead us against, bring us up against a wall of human logic and force us back into a position of humility before the king. He is saying, listen, I am the only trustworthy judge and how do you conduct yourselves amongst one another and under, under the umbrella of a gospel of grace without violating what we just considered, which is pointing the finger. Now, there is a call as a church that a little leaven leavens the lump. 
leavens the whole lump. That church discipline is a conversation in Scripture. But church discipline is, is it's taking into consideration the whole church body and doing what, we, what is necessary. This is why there are elders, is to protect the church from those that would actually that would actually come in and desire to pervert the gospel of grace. So there is a realm of protection. We are called to be responsible as as protectors of the very gospel message which God has given us. But we have gone beyond the scope of what the church is called to protect when we start policing what it is that people wear, how, how it is that they speak, when we, when we start to basically define that unless you look like this, and so the, all of a sudden protecting the gospel is secondary to protecting our particular lens of how we interpret the gospel and then holding everyone to an accountability so that they all look like one another. This is not some sort of institution of becoming the Borg. We are unique in, our, in regards to our relationship to one another. Um, I would never judge you because you don't get up and pray at the same time as I do or read your Bible the same way that I do. That's not how judgment works. The judgment that, that comes is the judgment that, is there anything that violates people from experiencing the grace of Jesus? Are there things that are, is there someone that's come into the community of grace and is actually preaching another gospel? Paul tells us we are to watch that the church will be infiltrated. Jesus warns that in the last days, there will be many false prophets that come in and proclaim themselves to be Jesus. Those are things that we need a judgment not based in blindness, but a judgment that's based in discernment because we know our king, we know his voice and we follow him. And that's the question. Judgment with discernment is the ability to know the voice of Jesus from the voice of the ruler of this world, which I think too many Christians seem to be more familiar with than the voice of Jesus himself. And it's played out in a hostility that's found within the church against those that are not understood, against those that we are supposed to be offering the gospel of grace to. And, that, and I think that this is deeply problematic. So uh, do not give dogs what is sacred. Well, what, is, what about this? Matthew 15, a Canaanite woman comes to Jesus and says, has mercy on me, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David, my daughter is severely oppressed by a demon, but he did not answer her a word. And his disciple came and begged him saying, send her away for she's crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, but she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. This is a powerful picture that, that the kind of we, this woman sees herself. I, I love this. He gives her, even dogs just ask for crumbs. And he's like, look at her faith. This is not the kind of judgment. This is not the kind of dog that we are looking for. The religious dog is, is actually the problem by which we need to have a discerning judgment. And, that, and where I look for, the, the thing that I'm constantly looking for is when do I play this role? It's the judgment I place upon myself in light of the gospel 
that, uh, where I examine myself before I step up to the pulpit and ask the question, am I representing King Jesus well to this community? Am I doing it in a way that is open and honest about my own brokenness and fragility without Christ? And am I calling the people to imitate an intimacy with Jesus? And I think that where we need to allow judgment begins in the house of the Lord is allow the grace of God to be the judge upon our gracelessness. Philippians chapter three, verses two and three, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh, for we are the circumcision who worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, and we put no confidence in the flesh. Here, Paul refers to the dogs as those that actually move you away from the gospel of grace and move you toward a a posture of continual judgment within the pew, judgment of one another, of who actually is living up to the pattern of the flesh rather than the gospel of grace, which puts people in a position of service to one another rather than in a, some kind of, some sort of intellectual hierarchy driven by performance. And how often is that found in the church? What about pigs? Don't throw your pearls to pigs, what do pigs represent in scripture? That which is what? Unclean. That which is unclean. It's only mentioned, pigs are only mentioned a few times in the New Testament actually. And it, one of them is when Jesus allows the demons to enter into the, into the pigs and they jump off the cliff. But the idea of, of pigs is this idea of something that is unclean. And Jesus, like don't give your, don't give, don't, don't give your pearls to pigs. If you do, they, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Well, here, let me remind you once again of how are we to, how are we to understand that? And I think that Jesus is basically bringing us to the cost of discipleship. Is I don't think that we can be presenters of the gospel without being, running the risk of being torn to pieces. And Jesus himself the messianic psalm of 22 verse 16, for dogs encompass me, a company of in evildoers encircles me and they have pierced my hands and my feet. So is he saying we shouldn't share the gospel with unclean things? We are unclean by the nature of being Gentiles, friends. We would fit into the category of swine, by the way. And I think what's important for us to understand is that Jesus is saying you cannot actually be a carrier of the gift of the gospel of grace without running the risk of being torn apart by the world that does not understand it. And I believe that this is a call to a radical discipleship that understands that it could cost us. What will it cost me to follow Jesus? And the answer every time is everything. So the question for us is not in this judgment and discernment is not our ability to decide who should be able to receive the gospel, which is what people turn this into. But I think what it's actually calling us to understand is it is, it is calling us to understand, discern the voices that are trying to turn the gospel of grace into a work of the flesh, which actually leads to even more judgment. I think it is bringing us to a place of understanding the danger of being carriers of the gospel because the world is an unclean place in which we are called to participate without succumbing to its ideologies, which means that we inevitably will run the risk of being torn apart for adhering to the truth. 
And we are constantly giving away pearls every time we lift up Jesus to a lost world. What we are afraid of though is our, our drive for self-preservation has turned us into cowards before a lost world. Afraid to actually say, this is, this is not leading us as a society toward any kind of freedom. It's actually leading us into a greater tyranny, a greater despair. Are we willing to actually stand in the gap for truth? And are we willing to proclaim the judgment that has already been completed against the ruler of this world and his system, which, is that, which has embedded itself in the church itself? And I think that this is where we need to understand that the gospel of grace puts us in opposition to a world that is driven by the cult of humanism and the belief that human beings have the right to define for themselves whatever it is that they want to be. And the enemies of that ideology are anyone to say that that actually is not true. It's a cult. We live in the midst of a society that is under the, the siege of a cult that actually is destroying the human experience and actually doing incredible damage to what it means to be made in the image of God. And yet we sit by idly and pray that they don't notice us or attack us. And we do it all under the false umbrella of love when in actuality it is our judgment upon a world that we think is beyond saving. And I think that this is why Jesus calls us back to a place and recognize that we ourselves are dogs occasionally and the swine. <laughs> we participated in the tearing apart of Christ as he, as he hung from the cross. It's the whole reason he came. When you recognize what has been taken out of your eye and you know how painful it is to come into the exposing light of Jesus, we will be gentle in our approach to others because we recognize it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for the gospel and its ability to bring transformation to our lives. I pray that we would understand the power of your word today, that we would understand, Lord, that it is not our place to sit in the seat of judgment, but we are to be conduits of grace, which is actually a proclamation of the judgment that has already come upon this world and its systems. That we ourselves are unworthy. We deserve your judgment and instead you gave us what we did not deserve which is your love. Jesus, we accept your substitution that you stood in our place and took that judgment into yourself so that you could set us free. May we not utilize that freedom that has been granted to us to put others under the bondage of our false judgments, but may we see clearly what we have been saved from, and may we be in the business of drawing people into the truth by representing and reflecting your gospel of grace in a world that is increasingly hostile to grace. Jesus, thank you that you have cast your pearls before us. And Lord, we have torn you apart and yet you used the tearing apart, the hatred and vitriol of, of, of human existence in the fall. You have used it 
to bring about our redemption, our salvation. How mysterious is the love of God. May your love judge everything unworthy in us. May the fire of your love burn us clean. And may we be transformed into your likeness. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.